So as you head back to your seats, grab out your Bibles with readiness, with excitement, with enthusiasm. This is the Word of God. It's living. It's alive. It is active. And I can see we're all very excited. It'll grow as we continue. Let's pray before we do anything else. Father, we thank you for these moments that we share. May we never be a people who take them for granted. How easily we forget your goodness and your grace, all the privileges that you give to us. So we thank you, Lord, just for a moment to openly gather, to proclaim your word, to hear from your spirit. We thank you that you are a gracious and good and loving God. We thank you that there are things on your heart. Already you've been moving and doing things, but we simply say, Lord, give us listening ears. Give us hearts that are like receptive soil, eager to grab a hold of all that you have for us. Lord, would you open our eyes to see more of you, that we might become more like you, that we might shine ever brighter. Where we need it, Lord, lift us up, encourage us, Where we need it, correct us, discipline us even, Lord. And at all times, may all that we do and say be pleasing in your sight. May your kingdom come and your will be done, even today in this place, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So Habakkuk is where we're headed. We're going to look at this final chapter, chapter 3. It's the end of the journey. And it's been a bit of an interesting journey. It's a a fascinating book. There's ups and downs, there's struggles, there's wrestles, but it is in some ways like a Disney movie because it all ends well in the end, in some regard anyway. He finishes off with a praise song, a song of praise. And we've talked about this journey of Habakkuk, moving from a place of great sorrow. And here he is singing from desperation to this declaration of the God that he's encountered, not on a mountaintop, but wrestling through a deep, dark season, a a sojourning of the soul. From a a place of pain to a place of praise to this faithless, hopeless God, where are you? That was all he could see to now what becomes this bold proclamation of a faith filled life. And it's interesting as you read through this book, often Hebrew scholars suggest that this perhaps was not so much a book that was written to be studied. Obviously, studying all books of the Bible are good and important and wonderful. But it seems, given some of the nuances of the text, given this whole chapter as it concludes in a song of praise, that perhaps this was a book that was performed more than taught, that it It played a part in liturgical services, certainly as the stories were told in coming generations, as utter devastation occurred to God's chosen people, to the Israelites, that they would have, in those moments, perhaps said, yes, but but remember Habakkuk. Remember the story. Let's, Let's tell the story again and let's allow that to draw us towards this path of praise. And perhaps they would have done that. They would have learnt the tune. And I did think half seriously about suggesting maybe Adam could you know, put the words to music and we could all sing this final chapter. And 
Not sure how enthused he would have been that, or some of the rest of us. But indeed, that is the nature of what we will read this morning. It's this wonderful proclamation. So we're getting again this week our Bible reading in early. And if you'd like to follow along, we're going to read just the whole chapter. Get this whole picture and then come back and just see what we might discover within these verses. Are you ready? Habakkuk's prayer, Habakkuk's praise song, chapter 3, verse 1. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, wrath, remember mercy. For God came from Teman, from the holy Mount Paran, Selah. His splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hands, and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence, and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. He turns a little more personal. He says, I saw the tents of Cushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your horses, on your chariots of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and the moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they speed at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people. For the salvation of your anointed, you crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. We can only perhaps wonder what it, exactly it was that he was seeing as he proclaims this picture of his God. And in verse 16, I hear and my body trembles, my lips quiver at the sound, rottenness enters into my bones, my legs tremble beneath me, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. And then of course, this final proclamation, which is just too good, too rich to not read again. Verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. We've said before, he's not describing wonderful times. And yet, he says in verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord, I will take joy in the God of my salvation, for God the Lord, He is my strength, and He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. And there we have the end of this little book of Habakkuk. 
And as I said, this, this has been an interesting journey. I, I think every time I read through it, there's, there's all these different elements. And we've talked through this language of lament, which is there even right the way through to the end. There's this wrestling through some of the issues. We talk particularly about injustice and suffering in a, a Christian perspective and how God invites Habakkuk into a deeper knowledge of himself through those very realities that he's confronted with. We talked about him uncovering this reality of a real faith, tried and tested, a faith that endures, that's centered, it's secured, it's sourced from the eternal faithfulness of God, not some particular outcome. But ultimately, Habakkuk's journey, it becomes, as we see so wonderfully here, a pathway to praise. See, it wasn't just a pool for him to wallow in. Too often, I think, we're faced with difficult times and it becomes more of a pool than a pathway. Maybe I'm just speaking for myself. There's something there and I just want to plunge right in. Explore its depths and drown in the midst of the murky waters. And no one ends up feeling better. But for him... The sorrow, the misery, the, the difficulties, even this injustice and suffering, that's not the end in itself. It's a means to an end, and the end is always to encounter God afresh, to encounter his mercies, to be amazed by his everlasting faithfulness and love, to experience his goodness, even in the midst of those places, and as a response to pick up his guitar and sing a song of praise and worship. So that's really what I want us to, you're bringing some of these threads together. I want us to discover how it is that we then uncover this pathway to praise. That's simply the title and the theme. How do we walk on this same pathway to praise? Or if you like, if you'd like another title, if you don't like the first one, Finding Your Song in the night. We often talk about it. There's a song for us to sing even in the nights, even in those dark times. Okay? How do we find it? How do we discover it? How do we uncover and walk along this pathway to praise? Because ultimately, I think that's what it's about. I mean, we can read the stuff. We can listen to some sermon series and perhaps think, oh, well, there was some good bits in there. I've learned a few different things. But if it doesn't change us, if it doesn't impact us so that we can walk the same journey, so that we can wrestle well, learn to wrestle, so that we can uncover this same faith, this rock that endures, and as a result, to build our lives on it, and ultimately, to come through those moments with a new song of praise, then we've got to ask, well, what was the point? Was it merely an intellectual exercise? But this is given to us as God's gift, all of his word is, to change us, to, to transform us, to help us to live well and to walk well and to live this journey of faith in the good times and in the times that are more challenging. So three really simple things realities I believe that are important for us as we bring it together as we uncover this pathway of praise and number one is simply this we need to learn to 
remember. We need to learn to remember. What is the very first thing that we should do when you don't know what to do? When all you see looking ahead is bleak and difficult and there's nothing there that is helpful. I would suggest the starting place is to look back. And that's what he does. He starts here in verse 2. He says, Oh Lord. And that word alone, that is the, the covenant name of God. Yahweh, the covenant God, the God who has covenanted with us, the God who has proven himself faithfully. He said, I've heard the report of you. I'm, I'm remembering what I've heard. I'm thinking back to, to those times, to all those moments of history with you. And he'll pick out some. He talks about, I remember the God of glory. You know, the heavens were covered in his splendor. The earth was full of his praise. I'm remembering those times that you've gone out victoriously for your people. You went out, verse 13, for the salvation of your people, the salvation of your anointed. All those times that you have broken through for us. We were faced with hopelessness. We're there at the Red Sea. And all of a sudden, God came and made a way where there seemed to be no way. And he moves from this, this sense of God's general provision to his specific reality in his journey with the God. Verse, verse 7, we said he, he says, Habakkuk says, I saw you, God. I saw you doing this. I remember those moments in my life where I've encountered you. Encountered you. So we've got to learn to make a habit of remembering. Remembering who God is. I had this conversation with one of my girls about a week and a half ago and I picked her up can't remember exactly, it might have been from a dance class or it was later in the evening and uh, I popped her in the car, we're heading home and I could see she was in a bad mood and this particular child, if she's not doing well, everybody around her is going to know that she's not doing well. So we're sitting in the car, I'm like, okay, you want to talk sweetheart, what's going on? And the floodgates opened and she said this, that and the other and I was thinking to myself, it's really nice you know, that the dramas in her life are the teachers and the schoolyard things and bits and pieces. And I mean, not that I want to belittle what she's going through, but she, she gave me all these things that were on her mind. And I said, all right, sweetie, just hit the pause button for a moment. And we could talk through all those things. But I said, let's, let's just talk about your perspective. Is there anything you can think of to be thankful for? She's like, no, nothing. <laughs> Anyone else ever been like that? There's nothing. There's nothing. Dad, there's nothing I can be thankful for. I'm like, okay, all right, well, let's, let's just start there. Let's have a think about this. How about the fact that I'm here with you, all right? You've got a daddy who loves you. How about the fact that we're heading to a house? You've got a roof over your head. You've got food. Ever been for one of those journeys? And it continued on. And I you know, talked through some of the positives in their life. And I, and I said, and, you know, you've got, you've got a God who is crazy about you. He's madly in love with you. You know, you've, you, you've got the world before you. You've got so much going for you. And she paused 
she looked at me, this was some conversation, we nearly got home. She's like, actually, I do think I feel a bit better now. That was her response. I said, well, it's something, isn't it? I do feel a little better now. See, the reality is not many of us need reminders of what we don't have. We don't need to kind of catalogue in the calendar our difficulties. I just want it to flash up and be reminded of all my problems and all my stuff and all my failures. Oh, there it is again. Great. We don't need to be reminded, do we? They seem to present themselves front and centre of their own accord. What I believe that we do need to put into the calendar, that we do need to get stuck in, as we talked about at the beginning of the service, like a, a broken record, is the goodness of God, is his faithfulness, is the history. We've got thousands of years worth of history, and all of it proclaims a faithful God. We've got, and we will celebrate next week, 30 years of history as a church. I mean, that counts for something. There are runs on the board. There are seasons that we've gone through. Now we're in the midst of a, a, a new building push to get into a new space, hopefully sometime next year, Lord willing. And just remembering, even before my time, but I'm told when we moved here some 22 years ago, we needed a, a significant increase in offerings. There's a lot of people who said, it's not going to happen. It's not going to be done. From day dot, the moment that we took that step of faith as a church and moved into this building, there was money to pay for all the needs that we had and more. There's 30 years of God's faithfulness to us. Not that it's all been easy, but there is a history that's worth something. And as I look around, I'm so encouraged by the personal histories. People have gone through seasons and journeys, and I've been through some seasons myself, and we can encourage one another, can't we? Like we, we can help each other to remember because we are too prone to forget. Remember who God is. That's where Habakkuk begins. I, I don't know where I'm going looking forward, but I can always look back. And every time I do, I see a God who, when I've been faithless, he's been faithful. When I've fallen down, when I've made a mess, he is there to pick me up. When I've needed a breakthrough, he has come through time after time. And you see, that's one of the major themes. I hope we've got it as we've studied through this particular book, that wherever you find yourself, there's a God who's with you and there's a God who is enough. Not just because of what he does, but because of who he is. He is enough. He will forever be enough. His love never fails. His mercies are new every morning. And regardless of the circumstances and how dark they seem, he is there working for our good. Amen. You can say amen. That's all right. That's legal. It's permitted. You see, as I think about this, if we just took a moment to remember who God is. It's hard for our affections not to be stirred. It's hard for our faith not to rise. He's done it before. He is going to do it again. That's just who he is. He's a faithful God. He's going to provide. He's going to break through. He's, he's with us and he's for us. 
He knows the end from the beginning. It's hard not to just pick up your guitar, as Habakkuk does, and to sing a song of praise. May we always remember. Now, it would be nice if that was kind of the end of the story, but sometimes we get stuck there and we kind of fail to recognize, we've just got to remember, but actually there are still difficulties and struggles. And even in the midst of this song of praise at the end, we see this. And so the second point, first is to remember. The second one is to recognize. And I want to read the scripture and then I'll tell you why I think this is important. Verse 16. He says this in the midst of this picture of God and his victory. And I'm just going to remember you. And, and all you've done is it's amazing. He says, verse 16, yet I, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness in, enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. I would suggest that he's not having the best of days. He's got a few things going on. Yet, he says in the second half of verse 16, yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble. Yet I will quietly wait for that which God has said would happen to come to pass. This isn't easy. Let's not pretend it's always easy. But there's one thing that Habakkuk says with certainty. And yet, even though this this is, is so alarming to me that my body's trembling and my lips are quivering and my very physical bones within me are rotting away there there's there's agony and yet i will choose to trust in god even when it hurts he's in control and he is in charge and you see that's been this theme the whole way through it's too easy when we're in the midst of difficult times to say you know what i think i can actually do a better job than god here i can actually put myself on the throne lord i pretty sure you might need a bit of help in these couple of areas. But in the midst of remembering who God is, I remember you're faithful. I remember that you're good. I remember that you're gracious. I remember that you are going to make a way. And because I remember who you are, I'm willing to recognize and surrender to your sovereign will. To recognize that you are God. I am not in control here. And it hurts, but not my will, but yours be done. And you know, if ever you're in those moments where it is difficult to surrender to his sovereignty, to wrestle through, I always remember that he's not removed from that. Because there was another man in a garden so distressed that he was sweating drops of blood crying out to God saying God is is there any other way he's feeling the anguish in his bones is there any other way yet not my will but yours be done and that's the path if we want to walk upon this pathway of praise if we want to find the song that he has for us in the night We've got to remember, but ultimately we've got to recognize that he is in control. And we've got to surrender afresh. Not my will, but yours be done. 
You see, Habakkuk's name actually means, I don't think we've mentioned this yet in the series, but it means one who embraces, the embracer. And uh, Spurgeon, the famous preacher, he said this, Habakkuk was truly the one who saw the promises of God afar off and yet was so persuaded of them, he embraced them. He took fast and held upon the goodness of God and rested there. See, he was anchored into something that would never fail him. And it wasn't his ability to make right choices. It wasn't Habakkuk's desire for human history and what he believed was right. He made a choice. Lord, not my will. This is, this is hard, but I'm anchoring in to your eternal promise. I'm embracing all that you have. It's this reality of a God who's with us and a promise that will never fail us that enables us to embrace or to anchor our lives into the goodness of God. It was, it was interesting. It's a bit of a random tangent, but I was thinking this week, I'm sure many of us have been moved just by the reports of the fires and I think particularly when you grow up in Canberra and we saw the, the horrible bushfires here, it kind of brings back some stuff and some memories and there's that just that compassion and that sense of praying for a nation that really is spiraling out of control in many different ways. But the thing that I think in some ways stirred me more than seeing the fires themselves, not trying to diminish that, was the fact that, and, and I know that news media outlets report what they want to report, but it seemed like everybody who was anyone just wanted to grab some airtime to blame someone else. Anyone else get that, get that vibe, whether it was politicians or celebrities, or everybody had someone else to blame. And it just, there's something grieved in my heart. I'm like, God, we can't even as a society just grieve what is a tragic event. In the midst of that, we've got to find someone to blame for it. It's this person's fault, it's the environment's fault, it's the politicians, it's the councils, it's you name it. Donald Trump, he features in there, it's Donald Trump's fault. Throw it in. And that's not to say that no, you know, none of those contributed towards some of the issues we're seeing in some ways. But as I kind of thought through that, it's just an interesting place that we're in as a society, that that is our response. And as I kind of, this is just my way of thinking through it, I wonder whether at least a part of that reality of just needing something something to, to kind of hang our hats on, someone to blame, is in part this need that we have to feel like we're in control. Because if we're blaming someone, then it's someone's fault. And if it's someone's fault, then ultimately, somewhere along the line, we're actually in control of a world that is radically skidding out of control. Almost seems like this desperate attempt to grasp some sort of a, a sense of, it's okay, we can just fix a few things and the planet's going to be all right. We can just tweak a few things and we're all going to, we, we can do this. Does that sort of sound like a familiar cry in the heart of humanity that's been there from day one? The reality of the gospel is it's not okay and it never will be. And that's why he came and was brutally murdered upon a cross. And our hope is not in our ability to change. 
but it's in what he has done for us. See, there, there is this reality, I think, at times for us, even as believers, let's bring that back to us now, to need to be in control. We struggle greatly with this reality, as Habakkuk says, I'm not in control, and in fact, what I see alarms me, but I'm still choosing to trust you. Not an outcome I can control either way. One other interesting tangent, and then we'll kind of bring it back together. I read this particular study, it was probably about a month ago, Now it kind of grabbed my attention and it was often another tangent, and then it kind of came back in a relevant way, or I, I thought it was relevant anyway. And in this particular news article, it was a study that had been done by three or four think tanks, and they had revealed statistics about primarily the impact in today's society of mental health upon the workforce. And this is one of their conclusions. They, said, they came up with this statistic that over half of millennials... And 75% of Gen Zers have left a job for mental health reasons. Half and 75%. And in fact, there was one particular profile of an organisation, Cisco, some 75,000 employees, 11,000 managers, international company, and they do offer their employees a number of mental health benefits. And it said that at currently, they have over 10% or one in ten of their employees that are accessing their particular mental health benefits, and mainly the younger generation. And so this particular article was trying to grapple and acknowledging that there's no easy answers, but why is there this, this plague of mental illness and of anxiety and of depression? And of course there's no easy answers, but they did, at the end of somewhat convoluted article, they referenced the research of a professor from Boston College by the name of Peter Gray. And his conclusion, having done studies not only on the current generation, but on the education system from the 1960s until today, one of the major triggers he came up with was what he called the changing internal locus of control. You think, what does that mean? Good question. From what I could tell... He's saying one of the major shifts that we've had over the last generation is this generation, the, the young generation and really the whole generation with the advent of social media and there's nothing wrong per se with social media, let me clarify that. I think it's a very powerful and useful tool to communicate and for many other things. But what's been generated as a part of this and even going right through, through the education system to the Gen Z X, Y generations that are in the workforce has been this micromanaged, controlled environment. Everything is controlled. If we don't like what we see, we just whack another filter on. I can have more hair, less hair, I can be a little bit fitter. Like we control everything about our lives, we control the way we communicate with who we communicate with. There's, there's far fewer real life interactions in this current generation being people who are alive now than there was in the 1960s. Yes? Can someone say yes if you were alive in the 1960s? It's totally changed. It's totally different. And even the education system has become far more geared about the kid rather than the student. It's all about you're in control. You, you know, controlled learning environments. You, you like, it's all about 
raising a generation that has this false notion of control, this changing internal locus of control, is his particular conclusion. And he summarizes this and comes to his conclusion, saying the problem with all of that picture is that the moment that some of these young people hit troubled times, when the job gets tough, when there's something that is outside their control. Well, first I'll perhaps try and blame someone else. But if it's completely outside their control, they fall apart. There's no grip for it. There's no capacity to cope. Now, he is a result. In fact, he makes this statement. He says, as a result, many young people are lost. And I would agree with that particular summary. His call is for radical changes to an education system. My suggestion is that the fundamental issues here go far deeper than what is taught or not taught in schools. That so much anxiety, so much stress, so much of the difficulty at times that we place upon ourselves comes from this simple reality. Our need to be in control. Our need to be in control. Just think that through. I remember times in my life going through very difficult seasons, and I've shared some of these stories before, one particular moment, praying. Praying about an outcome. And the Lord spoke to me so clearly and said, Andrew, do you trust me? And my first response was, well, tell me what's going to happen, and I'll tell you if I'm going to trust you. (laughs) Anyone ever been in that place before? See, I was putting my trust in an outcome or a something rather than a someone. I think often God doesn't give us the answers because the moment he did, our faith is anchored where? It's anchored in an outcome rather than in him. Well, if it's yes, then I'll trust you. But if it's not, well, forget about that. What if instead of living a life like I have, like so many of us have, with this need to be in control, we wrestle through like Habakkuk to this place where we say, you know what, there's clenched teeth, there's trembling bodies, this hurts and it's hard, but I choose to trust you. I relinquish my right to be on the throne determining every detail of my life. See, if we can come to that place, then I believe it opens the door for this next expression of Habakkuk, which is so, I think, mind-boggling. Because he concludes the whole thing in chapter 3, verse 18. He says, yet, he's saying in light of everything that's gone on, of all that we've wrestled through, and yet he says, I'm going to rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy. I'm going to find joy. Now, how the heck does he get from that place of sorrow and misery and difficulty? And he's like, actually, no. I'm going to find joy. I'm going to anchor myself in God, and I am assured of the reality that as I do that, there will be joy. And see, this is the progression. First of all, he remembers Then he he recognizes the sovereignty of God, allows God to be in control, and then the outcome, remember, recognize, is he rejoices. He finds joy. He finds a, a deep joy, a meaningful joy, an indestructible joy. 
And that's the place that I hope all of us can find. If you're anything like me, the struggle is so often that our joy is not anchored in that reality. It's anchored in outcomes. It's anchored in stuff. There's always that thought, if if, if I just have this, then I will be happier. Here's a a silly example. I was talking about this actually at our home group the other week. But um, most of you probably would have been aware that there was a few car altercations that featured in a previous sermon from some months ago. And that began a journey of finding a new vehicle. And my old car, it was very well-loved. It was a bit of a, a farm vehicle. We got it when we moved out to the property, and it had some little dings and scratches in it. And in fact, one of my girls, very... Um, well, I'm not sure what the first words were out of my mouth, but I came out one day and she'd obviously picked up a sharp object and carved her name into the side of my vehicle <laughs> and then blamed her younger sister. I said, sweetie, it's your name and she can't even write. So, But it, eventually, eventually it became kind of endearing. I had a you know, car tattoo and... It was like it was a well-loved car. And then, of course, this car was written off and I'm thinking, oh, if only I could get a new car, I'd be so happy. Ever have that thought? Well, then, you know, one thing led to another. I've shared the story already and quite miraculously there was provision and I managed to get this new car. It was fantastic. It was the color I wanted. It was the upgraded version. It had a heated seats. Oh, nothing like a warm backside in a cold winter. It's definitely from the Lord. And the funniest thing happened. So I got this car and it was like from day dot, my anxiety levels were like through the roof, especially the kids had come near and I'd be checking their pockets for sharp objects. No food within 10 meters of the car. Get your feet off the dash. And I think they were looking at me like, I mean, they were used to just jumping in the back and riding around the property. And, but, but I was stressed out. I was anxious. And I thought, this is ridiculous, isn't it? Now, there's obviously no problem with a new car. The problem is so often new cars and so many other things become the anchor and the determinant of our joy. If I could just have that, I would be happy. You know, we talked about this recently as we looked through James. I love how he describes in chapter 1 the, the rich man, the people who just pursue pleasure and they, they perish in the midst of their pursuits. He says, pity those people. Pity those people whose hope, whose joy, whose trust is in something so fickle and so temporary. It's just here in a moment and it's gone even quicker. And you see, that is the beautiful reality of this little book of Habakkuk's journey is the best the world can ever offer is enabling us to grasp the fleeting happiness that this world offers whilst just knowing and dreading those moments that we know are coming where it's all going to fall apart. But the reality of people of faith like Habakkuk, they can anchor into the promise of God, and discover the indestructible joy, a joy that's found even more in the midst of the trial. So it only sets it on fire as we realize even more that he all along is actually the very thing that we need. 
So that is the offer that I want to invite us to as the worship team comes back, as Habakkuk finds as he concludes this letter. He finds something greater than this world could ever offer. A God who hears, the power of his love that holds, the presence of his Holy Spirit. If we find Jesus and the faith that Habakkuk found, there's grace for every sin, there's an anchor for every storm, there's a refuge in every battle, there's strength in every trial. He proclaims himself to be the God who is and always will be enough and all that we need. Just think about it. What circumstances is that dependent upon? How much money, wealth, possessions do you need to obtain it? What trial and tribulation can unsettle that reality? That's the place where this indestructible joy is found. The world doesn't give it and the world can't take it away. Would you close your eyes? I just want to pray and then we're going to stand and just sing a song of praise together and then move into a ministry time. But I want to give us a moment before we do that, before we respond in praise. There's those three realities that we've talked about this morning. To remember, to recognize, and to rejoice. And just as you're there, this is your moment with the Lord. And I want to encourage you to begin to remember. I don't know what sort of a a day you've had or season or journey you're in. But I do know that there is a faithful God. Just remember who He is, who He has been to you. Maybe some of you are in that place as my little girl was. And even asking the question, well, what have you got to be thankful for? Nothing. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Just allow God to bring light, to bring truth. Allow Him to remind you of His everlasting love, of His faithfulness, of His kindness, of His mercy, of times where He's reached down and He's rescued you times that you've cried out to him and he has broken through he's delivered you times that he's sustained you through difficult seasons and as you remember maybe for some of us this morning it's not so much the remembering but it's more the recognizing and you know there's areas in your life where there is a need for you to be in control As you remember who God is, my prayer is that He would show us those areas of our lives where perhaps we need to surrender afresh. God, I realize that really I'm sitting on the throne here. That this is not your will. But this is more about me and what I believe to be right. And even if it's through clenched teeth and a rottenness of bones, of struggle, I believe there's a grace this morning for us just to bring those things to Him.
to say simply, Lord, we surrender afresh to you. And the reward for those who will is this third area of rejoicing. And that rather than having lives that are anchored into outcomes, into what we believe God should be doing and how he should be doing it, that our faith and our hope and that ultimately our joy would be centered, would be secured within the eternal faithfulness of the promise of an eternal Father who loves you. He is crazy about you. And He's inviting you, He's inviting me this morning into that deeper place of trusting in Him, of finding again that pathway to praise, that song in the night that comes as we remember and we recognize and we rejoice. Can we stand now in that place of just having spent a quiet moment with the Lord? We're going to sing and then there'll be an opportunity. After-